You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the Superlative Podcast. I am Ariel Adams, and today we are joined again by fellow A Blog to Watcher, David Breton. Hey, David. Hey, Ariel. Hello, everyone. So today we're talking about a topic that is interesting. It's philosophical. It's very much related to the watch industry, but it's in its entire interesting area unto itself. And the topic is luxury. Mm. What is luxury? What is a luxury watch? The various sort of exposures that we've had to luxury. There's no way that we're going to get through all of the concept of luxury in one conversation. If anything, I hope we can sort of open up a brief primer on this and then get into this discussion deeper later on. It's something we're going to talk about a lot, but I don't think that we can talk about the world of luxury watches before we start to set some baselines for how it is that we um, define luxury, how we feel about it, and where we come from. I mean, you and I, you know, we come from modest backgrounds, not bad backgrounds, but modest backgrounds. And what I mean is we weren't you know, served silver spoon, so to say. We didn't grow up having um, been given everything we want. We grew up, I think, with ambition and wanting things and learning about good things and having good taste. And we did grow up in good environments where we had inspiration from people that helped us, you know, learn between good and bad and set good expectations. But again, we're not people who come from huge amounts of wealth, even though we run in those circles a lot, especially amongst people in the watch industry. But we have an interesting experience with luxury. Let me just ask you a quick question. When in your sort of experience in, in doing what we do together, did you start thinking about the term luxury more and more, realizing that you had to think about it to really understand what it meant to you? The first time when that happened was when it was uh, used in a, in, a, in, a, in a bad way, when, when in, a, in a demeaning way, like a luxury or whatever, you know, because, because normally, obviously, it's in the best interest of anything that's luxurious and, and, and part of the luxury industry to sell that concept as a positive thing. But once it's spun as a bad thing, then you start looking at it differently. And then you start asking questions like, do I actually need this in my life? Should this actually exist? What is it? Uh, in fact, you know, how broad the term is it? Can you democratize it? So it, it leads all kinds of ways. So and, and this actually to answer your question is pretty early on. Like one of the first actual trips that I went on in, in Switzerland was the first time. Yeah, you can't really go on a luxury event without asking yourself, What's going on here? Is this okay? Because I think that the concept of luxury makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. It brings up ideas of haves and have-nots. Mm-hmm. It brings up ideas of excess, decadence. Um, it brings up a lot of immoral behavior and sinning and just sort of generally being irresponsible. But deep down in our hearts, we know that luxury isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. We want luxury. So I think that there's a lot of what they call cognitive dissonance in people's minds when it comes to processing their own desire for luxury and and how they define it. You know, how often are we at events and you feel that even though it's luxurious, you're like, this isn't something that like people outside the space, you know, would agree is okay. Like this looks like a lot of decadence, a lot of a lot of waste. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love it. But something about it makes it feel like, you know, you have to defend participating in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think we have to separate wasteful luxury and wa- uh, and luxury that is not quite so uh, wasteful. I mean, in some aspects, let's, let's pick like a Rolex manner just so that we, we have like a complete example. That, to my mind, if you own it for 40 years or 30 years and that's the only watch you have, it's still, it was a luxury purchase when you made it. But through all those decades by not spending on other watches that need not uh, be made and all that, it becomes something that is actually not quite so wasteful, even though you spent like two months, three months, four months, or however many months of, of, of your wage on it, so or earnings on it. And so I found this interesting contradiction because I looked up the uh, the, the definition of, of luxury before this uh, recording, and I found two, two uh, <laughs> definitions. And one uh, says, a state of great comfort or elegance especially when involving great expense. Fine. Interesting. But Cambridge Dictionary says something expensive that is pleasant to have, but is not necessary. And that's contradictory because um, 
a state of great comfort or elegance is not something that is not necessary. I mean, great comfort is necessary. You don't want nobody in their right mind would want to live their lives outside of great comfort. We are all striving for that. How we define it is something uh, to our own, uh, you know, desires or definitions or whatever. But we want it. And sometimes, yeah, that involves great expense, sometimes not. But then again, the other definition says it is not necessary. So that's why we have to make this uh, separation in terms of luxury, what is wasteful and is not, what is necessary and is not. I want to say right now that the term luxury is used so liberally that it Mm. doesn't necessarily have one definition. Here you have two pretty respected authorities on word definitions, and they seem to have completely different approaches to defining a term, which most people living in big cities see every single day. How often do you see luxury condominiums, luxury condos, luxury cars, luxury dining, luxury fashion, luxury jewelry? We see the term luxury applied to things which probably are luxurious and things that are not luxurious at all. The term, like the word natural, tends to not really mean anything. It becomes almost an opinion. And I think what's interesting about the terms that you, you know, that you read the definitions out of the dictionary, they don't feel very complete to us. Like we've been in the luxury industry for so long. We're like, "Mm, that's part of it, but that's not really all of it. I've come up with a very philosophical definition for luxury. Now I have this, you know me, I'm nerdy with words and things like that. Maybe it's part of the, the legal background, but I don't think that we have any good grasp on the meaning of a word until we've determined what the opposite is. I, I very much believe in sort of the, hmm. the oppositional nature of, of, of terms. And if you don't have an opposite of something, if there's, you know, does down mean anything without there being an up? Does hot mean anything without there being a cold? So what is the opposite of luxury? And I think that's where I begin my question. And the term I came up with, with the opposite of luxury is efficiency. Mm. So I think that luxury is not necessarily an adjective, but it's almost like a state of being, um, like happiness, where the opposite would be sadness. Efficiency is something that is important to strive towards. But like you said, if you live purely efficiently, meaning nothing more than what you strictly need to survive, and I think there's a lot of difference of opinion of what you need to survive, mm. you're still not happy. If you just had that, you'd probably want to kill yourself. Like, I'm not even exaggerating. You'd probably want to kill yourself if all you had was air to breathe, shelter, food, um, you know, and, and, and the very basics. You probably wouldn't want to live very long. If anything, we want to live because we believe in the hope that something better will happen to us tomorrow than is happening to us right now or that happened to us yesterday. So... I think that luxury is actually more than just a term for things that are exclusive and expensive and hard to make or hard to find. It's actually a core emotion that we need. And it's similar to sort of this yin and yang concept where, you know, half the circle is efficiency and the other half is luxury. Every human being needs their own special mixture of both. And that's how I begin my definition of luxury. So can we call it a distant um, aspiration, basically? Well, I think it actually goes more to the, the notion of comfort, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, c- comfort is a type of aspiration, I think. Yeah, you can aspire to be comfortable. I just think that you can aspire to be so many things. Look, there's also you know what we call positional luxury or positional items. And the idea is that the, the item is there to create status. You know, you wear something very expensive, you, it shows the status of being rich. The problem I have with using the term luxury to, in, to purely define positional goods is, A, it has more to do with, with than just positional goods. And positional goods don't necessarily have to be expensive, right? You can have like a badge on your, on your body that says you are a general or a police officer or a soldier. That badge isn't expensive, but with it comes an awful lot of positional value. So I don't necessarily think that the positional side of luxury, meaning that gold watch means you're rich. Yes, it's expensive to get that, but just because you have a gold watch on your wrist doesn't necessarily mean you're rich. You could be borrowing it, (laughs) right? That's true. What's more important in that scenario is the fact that the person wearing the gold watch 
owns it and ideally earned it. And the luxury to them is the comfort in knowing I have so much extra in my life, I can blow money on a gold watch. So in that regard, it actually goes back to this notion of reminding yourself about how comfortable you are. That's true. And, and, and you said something interesting when you said blowing money on it, because that means it's not even remotely uh, a necessity. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily a logical uh, purchase. But then again, if you, if you buy it for status, some people need status or need to, um, um, you know, create some sort of surround themselves with status items because in their daily lives, they do actually, or they think that they do need to prove their status over and over again. Because if you are wearing a gold watch, then you don't have to go through 30 minutes of discussions just to establish your status, but that watch makes that for you or does that for you and, and spares that for you. Yeah, it's a good shortcut. Um, exactly. That's a good point. Now, let's talk more about efficiency. And I think what's so interesting is that in today's world and for the last 10 to 15 years, maybe a little bit more, culture has talked about efficiency, especially in a business context, like it's a good thing. I have a really weird idea about efficiency, and I think that efficiency, at least a lot of the ways that it's implemented in business, is not a good thing, but actually a bad thing. And here's what I'm thinking. If a company saves money, it's usually not to keep afloat, but it's usually to give investors or shareholders or something like that more profit. So the excitement around efficiency in a business context is not really to make the company any better but to help extract more profits. What ends up happening in result is that companies that are overly efficient don't spend on any extras. Now, where does the extra go? The extra goes to fringe benefits of the company, facilities, um, experiences, and quality of life at work, as well as things like salaries and wages that make people happy. If anything, efficiency is the enemy of human beings being happy at work. Efficiency is something that, in a lot of ways, is actually bad. Efficiency makes us miserable and depressed and removes a lot of the fun of being alive. I think that the world needs a lot more luxury and that the notion of pursuing efficiency and, you know, to, at, at all costs is too expensive, <laughs> ironically enough. Being efficient mm. is too expensive because it deprives human beings of the comforts that make them want to go to work, that make companies creative. Efficiency has created, I think, more problems in today's world, outside of, you know, I mean, look, if you're writing software, yeah, you want to be efficient. If you're making an engine, you want to be efficient. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about financial and business efficiency. I think that the, the quote-unquote wasted money actually goes into people's pockets. Ideally, you spread that out amongst enough people. And in that regard, I think it brings this notion of luxury um, back to something that's a lot more socially acceptable, which I think is interesting because now we can talk about this notion of moral versus immoral mm -hmm. luxury. And before, I, I want to ask you what you think about this, but I'm going to tell you a little story. A couple of months ago, boy, everything, you know, since the pandemic, everything is blending together. Pre-pandemic. Um, March 124th. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I was asked to give a guest lecture at a university, and the, the, the class was luxury brand marketing. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. And so, I asked this class a lot of important questions, and this was a you know it was a, it was a pretty big class, a lot of people in there, and I asked them that question um, if they could tell me about what they thought was moral versus immoral luxury, and they had a really hard time doing it, even though I think everyone has a sense that there is definitely moral versus immoral luxury, and we just touched on that. So when you think about this, what comes to mind? Yeah, that's an interesting topic. I um, I don't really like it when people moralize over stuff. So I, you know, I, I, I ask for all the listeners to pardon me for doing it because I myself don't really like, don't, don't like it when some people say, oh, this is right or this is wrong. I, I don't think that too many of us are, you know, living, living lives where we're in the position to, to, de uh, to define what is right or wrong. We can have our own opinions, but to tell someone what is right or wrong that he or she is doing is, you know, it, it, obviously there are some limitations, obviously, <laughs> but, you know, if you, if you want to just, you know, drink champagne all day and just lie on a bed, I don't think that anyone can say, oh, you're you, living the wrong you, life. You want, I'll tell you what, I'll change the terms. This will make no, it no, no, it's, polite uh, okay. versus impolite luxury. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's it. But, but then again, if you, if you are surrounding yourself to, uh, with luxurious items or you're living a luxury life, chances are you either don't 
care about what people think of you or you know exactly what people would think of you if you live that lifestyle. Nobody thinks like, oh, I, you know, I will be the next Mother Teresa if I, you know, uh, pour this, you know, don't pray into this pool <laughs> that I'm sitting inside. You know, it's it's just to make people angry or make people envious or or whatever. So everyone has their own motives. But you know, back to the to the question of moral and immoral uh, luxury, I think it's it to it, it's defined by the extent of wastefulness. Uh, and obviously, we all have different again definitions <laughs> of that. But there comes a point in, in early Instagram days with rich kids of Instagram and and even in the watch industry, there were some people who were living this 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 stand, uh, you know just unbelievably uh, wasteful, luxurious life. Or at least it looked that way. It looked that way. They were not living that life. We all know that, but it, but it was made to look like that. And uh, smoke and mirrors and all that. But then again, Insta sham. Insta sham. But uh, but yeah, it's it's just it's just a matter of wastefulness whether or not it's it's considered. To be Is it just that? Is so so the sort of impolite or immoral luxury? It's mm-hmm. just a function of wastefulness. I think because if it's if it's just a moment of like a glorious moment of like I said, you know, pouring that don't bring it on and just get one point five million views and then you know the next day everyone forgot about it, then that's that's wasteful and therefore impolite. But if you are buying yourself, like I said, a luxury item that you intend to keep for decades and use it and and you've earned it, then I think that's that's not quite so impolite. Well, the funny thing is that the notion of wastefulness, while I completely agree, is also highly subjective. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this big thing right now I was reading about in China, there's this focus on being less wasteful with food. And apparently my understanding is that there's a, a sort of cultural norm about if you want to show off, you you order a lot more or some people would, you know, families would order more than they eat. Um, I read somewhere to be polite. Uh, again, it, it's it's not a culture that I that I live in. So I can only see it from the side, but I have definitely been in places where, you know, you just an overwhelming amount of food. Um, the, the parts of the Middle East are known for that. Of course, in America, you know, things are known for that. But this, there's interesting pushback on the wastefulness of, you know, of wasting food. And now they're doing all kinds of like funny, wonky things to, to try to tone that down. It's It's easier said than done. Food and luxury is something that obviously it's gone hand in hand for as long as we've even thought about the term of luxury. But it's interesting now that in the sort of world that we live in, where we're all trying to cut back and we're all being mindful of things, there's more of an eye on on immoral luxury. You know, it's sort of like, if it's, if it's going to be hard for some of us, it's going to be, it's going to have to be hard for all of us. Like you all can't sit sit there and and be, you know, so extravagant and conspicuous with your waste Mm -hmm because it's making too many people feel bad. If everyone's doing better, go ahead and be wasteful. So the interesting thing about the sort of immorality of luxury is it's highly contextually based, meaning there's no one definition of it. It's just sort of this ongoing case-by-case situation. And And the goal is to actually be polite. And that's a hard thing to do, right? It's to be wasteful, but to also be polite about it. And that's, that's a whole skill unto itself. Yeah, that's why it's fascinating for me to learn early on about this, uh, suppose, tension between the nouveau riche and old money. And there are, maybe maybe they are all like driving a Bentley, let's say, the same Bentley, the same Bentley condom, the GT, but it's going to be spec entirely differently if you are old money than if you are nouveau riche. And I could just go on, or the watches that you choose, maybe they are all wearing like a gold watch, but it's going to be a completely different looking gold watch. Uh, maybe they both, you know, go to the same restaurant, but where they sit and what they eat and how they behave, it's going to be entirely different. So it's been creating some sort of tension between between rich people as well, how some are are living their luxurious lifestyle. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I again, I think we did such a good job of sort of introducing the whole notion um, of luxury and, you know, how it's affected our lives. I just sort of want to repeat that the majority of the blog to watch team, and for that matter, people that write about watches are not people that come from very rich backgrounds. Uh, there are definitely people in, in the sort of marketing world and, of course, the brand world and, and the customer world that come from the most rich of, of, of backgrounds. And you and I have been at dinner with billionaires and things like that, just chatting about watches, you know, having the same interests and stuff like that. So watches are a great connector. Um, but we we as you know, educated, normal people who who desire luxury, 
have had to ask ourselves, you know, what can an average person reasonably expect to have in their lifetime in terms of luxury? I think that part of the problem we've had is we've been spoiled because we've gone to places, stayed places, seen things, done things that, um, you know, we probably never would have spent money on or even been able to afford. And then we go back to the real world. And so we have been a little bit um, tainted by luxury. And it's funny to say that, but I think we actually have. No, I, I, I actually look at it the exact opposite way. I think, I think yes, we are, we are spoiled, but we are spoiled in a way that we know how much. I, I for one, think like 90, maybe 95% of the luxurious experiences that I've had, I don't need in my life. 5%, yes. 95% <laughs> of those, if you would have asked me, do you want to try all these things? Uh, like eight years ago, I would have said yes. But only because I didn't know that 95% of that, I would actually not want to do again or experience regularly. And so just because, you know, we, we, we have these experiences does not mean it, it, we are spoiled in, in the sense that it, it has killed so much of my desires that I otherwise would not have known to be false or unsubstantiated. That, that's where we are spoiled, I think. I, again, there's, there's, there's no like one way of looking at it. I just think it's interesting to sort of conclude with, you know, our, our sentiments about it. Because we, yeah. before we got into watches, whether or not we knew it wanted luxury, liked it. I was, I've always been kind of a product snob, design snob, experience snob. You probably were um, yourself. And then that sort of side of us was just allowed to flourish, like completely flourish when it comes to watches. Because there's just like endless angles um, on the sort of luxury notion. Like, is luxury for you performance? Is luxury for you rare materials? Is luxury for you art? Is it, you know, human hours on the wrist and decor and design? There's so many ways of manifesting luxury in wristwatches that it provides like endless opportunity to sort of like, um, you know, regurgitate the experience slightly different or to redo it or to sort of, you know, to formulate a new set of variables of like a little bit of art, a little bit of exclusivity into one watch. And we're like, that's my kind of luxury. And sometimes we do the same thing. We look at a watch, we're like, mm, that sure as hell ain't my kind of luxury, right? Don't you feel that <laughs> way sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. I was just trying to think about what are the types of luxury in terms of watches that I specifically dislike and don't want. And 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 what and and more to the point, and, and I think it's a, a more difficult question to answer, what are those aspects of luxury watches that I thought I would want and I thought I would I would like and I ended up doing the exact opposite that or you know I ended up feeling disappointed because there are sometimes all these watches and obviously you know you and I both got into watches first reading about them or educating ourselves about them to some you know uh, in some way or another early on in the early 2000s and 2000s and so on and, and that was a different you know, point, you, you didn't go to YouTube and find innumerable, beautifully shot, you know, videos showing these watches. There were just a few images, like low resolution and just some text and whatever people said, you know, the words actually carried these watches more than the imagery. And so you were left to your own devices to imagine what is it like to wear such a watch, like a tourbillon or a gold watch or a diamond set watch or whatever. And then you end up with a gold watch, a tourbillon watch, and a diamond set watch on your on your wrist, and you wear it for a couple of weeks or a couple of days or or however long. And then you realize, you know, all those words and all the, all those things that you imagined it would feel like were um, exaggerated, to say the least. Sometimes, some not, not every watch is disappointing. Don't get me wrong; there are some truly amazing luxury watches. <laughs> but a lot of the time, I was like, I, I'm so glad I didn't sell out 150 thousand dollars for this because it's just such. Okay, such let, a... let me let me explain a little bit about what David's talking about here because this is yeah. important. And I think you sort of like you said all the right stuff there. But let's just okay. When you and I got into watches. The people that were mainly talking about watches online were people like you and me that appreciate it from a, I'll call it a hobbyist perspective. They didn't write about the money. It was never about the money. If anything, the money was like what you didn't talk about or was at the end. And, and people didn't really talk about the price. In fact, on the forum time zone, you were banned for talking about price. You're literally banned. You weren't allowed to do it. <laughs> okay. Nowadays, the a lot of the most popular watch content out there. Um, you know, sort of in the mainstream, it's like there's a dollar amount associated with it or the most exclusive this or check out so-and-so's $2 million watch collection. It's got like nothing to do with the product. 
it's design and exclusivity and good taste agnostic. It's all about around money. And, you know, I, I can't fault that because I think that everyone originally gets into watches, if you have no experience with it, a little bit about money because they're expensive and you're like, why? I remember for me that one of the first questions when I saw watches were you know, a few thousand dollars, mm. I, I was just like, okay, why? Can I, I need to figure out why. Why are they so expensive? My Casio costs 50 bucks. Why does this watch that does less cost 3000 you know, like I just I couldn't figure it out. It was this big question for me. And then, you know, I got sucked into it. And, and you know, that was 2000. And now, you know, <laughs> and now, yeah, and now and then, here I am. Um, <laughs> but this leads to, I think, the most important negative sort of concept of luxury associated with timepieces. And that is basically the Veblen good. And mm-hmm. how often on a blog to watch in the comments, when I'm talking about luxury, we're talking about pricing, does someone just go in there like, that's because it's a Veblen good. Um, <laughs> do you remember the actual definition of Veblen good? The actual definition? Well, I'm not sure if I can phrase it correctly, but it's, it's, it's basically that a product becomes uh, more desirable, the more expensive it gets. Yeah, it's basically that. So it's this phenomenon. And this, again, this goes to the sort of price part and, and the dark side of luxury watches as far as, you know, you and I are concerned, even though that's, you know, what makes a lot of the financial wheels turn. Yeah. Is this notion that a lot of people are attracted to things because they are a certain price point. And so a, a gentleman or a woman are not interested in wearing you know, the precision manufacturing and the low tolerances and the excellent finishes and the decades <laughs> of R&D and know-how that go into each Rolex watch. None of that matters to them and they never they may never think about it. I mean, literally, they may never, ever one time think about it. But what's exciting to them is the idea that my watch costs 10000 bucks This year, this year's a $10,000 timepiece, $10,000 on my wrist. For them... <laughs> If that same exact product costs $2,000, don't care. At $10,000, yeah. they do. And, you know, the old, the old Dom Perignon example, where in the 80s, they increased the price and they increased the sales and they confused them. Like, why is this happening? You know, there's very, it's high validation to this. And I think a lot of it has to do with, with consumer ignorance. I'm not trying to speak down upon consumers. Every consumer is ignorant about most things. But a consumer wanting to reward themselves will go into a liquor store <clears throat> will go into a liquor store and say you know what i had a really good party or birthday in plant in mind i think this is a 50 dollar a bottle um you know type of event so they just see the price tag and they assume well if it costs that much it must be great marketers eventually realize that consumers take these mental shortcuts where they use things like retail price to ask themselves what's better than what, and and then they sort of market it around that, creating a large manipulation effect where goods and services aren't necessarily priced at where they're at what they used to be or what they're worth. And and that's a problem because it used to be that you know a brand would have three price category levels. For example, you have the entry, the middle, and then the high end. And the one that was in the middle was middle quality, and the one that was the high end was high end quality. Until these days, there's no regulators saying what is and isn't luxury. So anybody can price anything at whatever they want. And it goes back to this notion of what the market will bear. And yeah, with enough marketing, you can get somebody to, quote unquote, stupidly spend $1,000 on something that has a, a $10 value. And then the question is, you know, that, that other $990, what, what is that worth? Where is that going? Um, is there a value there? Is there a type of investment? And, and a lot of people, if they knew that it only costs $10, wouldn't want to spend it. If it costs, you know, if it costs the supplier $900 and they're spending $1,000, okay. And, but it's that lack of transparency that allows a lot of companies to get away um, with selling what they hope are Veblen goods, even though they haven't really created one in sort of an organic ecosystem of products. Yeah, but I think I think people who just want something that's expensive get exactly what they want. They didn't care about any of this stuff. They, all they wanted is something expensive. So here you go. Whether or not it's well made, whether it tastes five times or fifty times better than a ten dollar you know bottle of champagne, you know who cares? You don't care. So why do we care if you don't care? I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. If somebody wants something that is expensive just for the sake of being expensive, 
like a $500 t-shirt with just a simple print on it, just to tell the world that, oh, I'm rich. The function of that product is to tell the world that you are rich, not for it to be handmade or whatever. Um, so in that sense, I think these are functioning to design. But isn't there sort of an unfortunate exploitative effect? The consumer who's spending $1,000 on a $10 item is essentially being exploited. And I think what a lot of behavior sort of dictates is that consumers, if exploited once, try to avoid being exploited again. That's true, but they are, well, I don't, but then again, it's functioning. I think, I think you can only be exploited if you are spending big money on something and then it doesn't work as advertised. But if it's function is to tell the world, it's sole function is to tell the world or your peers or whatever that you are rich. And then, oh, this guy is wearing a $500 t-shirt that I do know is a $500 t-shirt then that $500 t-shirt functions to design. As far as I'm concerned, I don't think that there's any exploitation in, in, in that. Maybe, maybe. Again, it's just, it's an interesting conversation to have. So let's get down more to the nuts and bolts about what is a luxury watch. I, I think the important point that we hopefully say without saying is that it's not about price. It can be about price and good watches tend to be expensive, but if you just rely on price, you, you very well may get something that isn't worth the money. And so I think that what our enduring mission has always been when trying to review watches, especially very expensive ones, is to try to explain to people why you need to spend this amount of money to get this result, or at least why a lot of human effort and value has gone into this thing. And while, yes, it's expensive, it's not like nothing went into it. And I find ourselves speaking and defending, you know, authentically, you know, high quality, authentically rare, authentically marvelous watches, a lot to defend the price. And that's something we have to do a lot. Um, and even sometimes when we defend the price, there's still a big complaint about it. I mean, that is the number one thing that people comment on in the space is about the price. And I don't think it's the same way with a lot of other industries. I mean, cars, not as much. I mean, they sure they talk about price, but there's this notion that because the car industry, at least most of the car industry is so much more competitive, companies can't just price whatever they feel like. They'd love to, but Mercedes, you know, and, and a lot of these, you know, mainstream luxury brands, for the most part, their vehicles have to be priced as low as they can get away with because the competition is so stiff. And even though there's so many, there's more watch brands than car brands, um, the rules seem to be a little, little bit different there, don't they? Yeah. And I feel like um, another reason why the car industry functions differently in this regard is that cars are easier uh, to compare because there are more types of functionalities. Oh, this can hold this much luggage or, or this has this sort of safety feature or this has four-wheel drive or this has whatever or, or a leather interior or a big screen or da 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 It's so many things that you do actually use and hence make it becomes a part of the car's value. Whereas in the watch, it has the time and everything else on top of it is basically just different, you know, degrees of muscle flexing. Oh, you know, <laughs> I have a column wheel chronograph and then you have a cam actuated one to so screw you. You know, that's that, that's basically all there is to it. But we all know deep inside that it doesn't matter quite so much as much price difference it actually, actually makes. And then that's how we end up with all kinds of brands. You know, some brand discharges like $900 for an ETA equipped GMT watch and then another one with the same movement charges, five grand. Uh, you know, and they have the exact same thing. So can you imagine the same car costing five times as much? You know, I, I don't think that, you know, that could ever happen in, in most of the vehicle categories outside of, uh, of extremities. A lot of people, when they get into watches, I think are excited about the price, but then immediately skeptical and defensive about it. And hmm. it becomes a really, I don't even know, like just a long process to get people comfortable with it. I mean, you know, a $10,000 watch, for example, like even if you have the money, I think for the consumer that really cares, it can require years for them to go from, that sounds like a lot of money for a watch to all of a sudden, that's a pretty good deal. And it's really funny. I remember years ago, we, we were joking about this and we're like, do you remember the, the first time you saw that a watch was $100,000 and you thought to yourself kind of like, oh, that sounds like a good value, like without even thinking about it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's interesting. Maybe, 
maybe, maybe, maybe that has happened. I'm not sure. Well, not with a hundred thousand, but let's say thirty thousand. With thirty thousand, yes. But we've been 000, we've no. been desensitized to price in a space that's inherently kind of wacky. Like, given the size that they are, hmm. you can like like there are some very expensive like cars, of course, but like. The most expensive watches, I think, are more expensive than than the vast majority of the most expensive cars. I think that's right. I mean, with the uh, the Jacob and Co. that's like uh, report, allegedly, you know, it costs seventeen million. But even if it costs five, I mean, you can get a Pagani for like two or three million or, or four million, you know, and and a Bugatti yeah. for two or three million. A freaking Bugatti! You can get an entire Bugatti for less than some watches. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And so, I mean, look, you're talking about, you know, very sophisticated cars or, you know, coach built, like one of a kind cars from Pagani. But, you know, you, you look at even like the Ferraris and Lamborghinis and things like that. And for the most part, their vehicles cap out, you know, what, about half million, something like that. I mean, yeah, they have some special versions. But, you know, yeah. there's there's probably more watches out there available at the half million dollar mark than there are cars at any given time. Yet the car market is so much bigger. Yeah, interesting because people are not that stupid <laughs> and they spend their money on freaking cars and not on freaking $40,000 watches. Thank goodness. Well, the thing is this, and it's always kind of the defense uh, for watches is, you know, a car, you know, like a watch is sort of a flexing item, as you said, but you can't take the car into the club with you. And if you live in, you know, an uh, apartment in Hong Kong, you may not even have a one parking spot, but you can probably fit an awful lot of watches in your home. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but too much. It's no, funny, I see, right? I see your point. It's absolutely funny. I mean, you can't park a car on the, on the dining table, you know, when you go out and you want to um, show your wealth. So, yeah, I understand the function of, of these watches. But, yeah, and then again, we must not underestimate what has happened with, with some parts of the world and some, some luxury watch markets uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. The incredible boom that uh, a lot of the luxury watch manufacturers have, have experienced. So then again, obviously the car market is, is huge. Uh, but then again, the number of crazy expensive watches that were sold and the ease with which they were sold uh, over the last, like, you know, since, you know, like late noughties and early teens, it's it's just unbelievable. Let's so let's talk about the book that um, I wrote that David helped me with, uh, especially uh, when it was beginning and the first version of it. I don't even know if volume two's come out yet, but I wrote the book you know about uh, the world's most expensive watches, and the price point began at two hundred thousand and went up to uh, eventually eighteen million dollars. And I think the big question is why do these watches cost so much? So now let's talk a little bit about what I call the sources of value. We can't sit there and bring up any particular watch because without context, it doesn't really mean too much. But I want to talk about those areas that tend to actually add to value. Because I think a big question is, if somebody wants to spend a lot of money on a watch, they want to get good value. That's that's a predominant theme these days. It's not about price, but people want good value for their money. Why? Why, 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 why do you think that is? I think people are just more conscious of it. I mean, the internet, for example, has basically shamed anyone for not you know, looking at a review, you didn't look at reviews, you bought cars, you didn't, you didn't read any reviews, you didn't compare, you know, same thing with watches. I mean, guys are obsessive, you know, they'll, they'll spend a year trying to determine if they want to buy one watch. Like, what else can I get? I want to make sure this is the best choice. I, I got to make sure this is it. So there's, there's so much of that research and decision-making that goes into it, where they evaluate right. all these factors. Nobody wants to feel like they're a chump. And then the internet also makes discounts very, very obvious. And it's not the end of the world if you see something you bought at a lower price. But but damn, it doesn't make you feel very good. And it just makes you feel like if this is so easily discounted, you know, long after I bought it, I know that that makes people feel bad. I know that that irritates them. So the more inherent value, as opposed to perceived value, but the more inherent value a watch has it tends to hold actual perceived value better. At least, let's hope so. Let's hope so, yeah. I, um, and it's not just the internet, but it's also the, the peers of, of, of people. You know, you don't want to go... The last thing people want, and, I, and I can, you know, I've been having this discussion with some brands before in terms of, you know, when it comes to their communication, pricing strategies, and all that, is that 
what you want to avoid and the reason why people come even, you know, for example, to a blocked watch to educate themselves, it's not necessarily because they so freaking very much love watches. You know, it's a lot of them do, but some just want to educate themselves before a purchase to make sure that their purchase that they are making is right. And they do that not because they woke up that morning thinking, oh my God, you know, I want to be the next watch expert or I love watches all that much, but simply because the next week when they are first wearing the new watch that they put for $40,000, they don't want to sit there at the dinner table and someone point at them and say, oh, you stupid idiot. You should not have bought that. You should have bought the other thing that I'm wearing or that he's wearing <laughs> or that we told you about. And then you feel stupid. And that's what people want, you know, want to avoid. They don't want to feel ridiculed or make a bad purchase and make themselves look good because we know that it is possible to do these days. Very easy, actually. Very easy. So just because you're spending big money, however much big money is for you, irrespective of the price segment, it's very easy to make a make a purchase that some expert can look at and say, that was a stupid decision. And people don't want to do that. And you know they do this research when they are buying a boat or buying a car or buying a house or buying furniture or whatever, not because they want to be a boat or a furniture or whatever ex- uh, expert, but because they want to feel safe about the purchase that they are making. And so that's where value comes in. And that's where um, uh, a block watch comes in as well. Let's talk about the sources of value. I think I had five different sources of value, sort of mini chapters about it. Um, let me rattle them off. Let's talk. Okay, there was, there was artistic value. Mm-hmm. There was uh, complexity, right? Like how complex the movement is. There was provenance. Uh, there was jewelry value. And then I guess there was just what we call like maybe decorative value, right? Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't the fifth one be status or, or recognition? I mean, provenance is part of that. But but that's not that's not a source of value. The, the, the status is a result of something else. Okay. okay you can't like, fine. you can't be like, now with 15% more status. Like you can't, you know, like how would you do that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so jewelry and precious materials, this is the area of value that more people understand. Like, you can go to, like, most people around the planet, and you ask them about diamonds and gold, and most people will know that those things are valuable. They might not know how valuable. They might not have any of it. But, like, there's this generally agreed-upon idea that certain materials are valuable. And so a lot of watches use those materials as a way of getting more value or showing more value. And that turns into precious metals and stones and things like that. So that's an easy one. Um, and we see watches that are very expensive in titanium or steel or other non-precious metals. And, and the press releases and the brands are always apologetic. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, yes, I know it's in steel, but it's really worth it, we promise. It's always funny how there's like this weird discussion around it. But that is, I think, the most traditional source of value that a lot of people know about. And it's and that's why, you know, in a lot of cultures, there's this idea where there isn't too much of an understanding of, of luxury because it's relatively modest culture and they don't have a lot of art and things like that within there, but they understand gold and diamonds. And so watches that you want to impress a certain portion of society, you put gold and diamonds on it, they know that's expensive. Do they know mm-hmm. that it's like a rare brand or it's very complex inside or it's a really good design? They may not know any of that and it may not assign value to the item. Mm. So sort of precious stones and, and the jewelry value, that's definitely one of it. There's this other side, which is the artistic decorative value. And this becomes a little bit more nuanced. It's similar, but it's like a good painting. There's a lot of watches that have miniature paintings or engravings or some type of composition on there. And you might look at that thing and you might say to yourself, that looks artistic, but maybe it was printed, you'd have to have a relatively sophisticated, educated eye to not just recognize art on something, but then evaluate, is it worthwhile? You know, you have like actual guilloche engraved dials and you have ones that are stamped. They look very, very similar, but one was done by hand on these romantic old machines that are admittedly quite difficult to operate. And one was a sort of pattern that was stamped and didn't cost very much money at all. They both look similar, and only one is very valuable, but it has no value unless you know the story behind why it's valuable. And I think that's what's interesting about artistic value and all these other ones, is, and everyone thinks for that matter, if you don't know why it's valuable, it has no value to you. And I think what's very interesting about sources of value is that outside of a tool being able to perform some task better than another tool, like my car is more expensive because it goes a lot faster and you know you need to go fast. 
Hmm. Versus with watches, it's very abstract elements of performance. Like, this is the best designed and best finished watch around. Like, according to who? You have to know enough to make that determination for you because there's no easily quantifiable performance metrics. You know, the best machine is the one that does it the fastest, most efficiently, breaks the less, whatever. In watches, because like you said, no one needs them for the functional value, a lot of education and, and understanding of story is required, especially when it comes to art. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, this is, this is leading us uh, pretty far, but, but yeah, that, that's all true. So the question is, what are uh, the the more common points of, of reference points of, of of value? You know, because uh, you know, like Guilherme, for example, who cares about Guilherme? I guess the top ten percent of watch collectors maybe do. Don't be modest, uh, David. You know you're a Guilherme man. I am, but uh, yes, <laughs> in that regard, I'm in the top ten percent. Otherwise, I'm not. But uh, you know, you and I have tried Guilherme, and it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't well, it? It's I just love how we, like we know it so well. We've made a verb out of it. <laughs> and a noun. It's a verb and a noun and an item, you know. <laughs> Tried some good guilloche lately. It's delicious <laughs> up in the mountains. Like it's not, you know, it's it, it it's you know, it's a it's a visual pattern and it's just it's applied interestingly. Okay, but similar to precious metals and precious stones, provenance is also something that a lot of people understand. And I'm talking about like something that was owned by a celebrity. This is very popular. Here's a watch that's worth nothing. And it's owned by a celebrity or allegedly owned by a celebrity. And all of a sudden, it's worth a lot. And so there was that Longines watch that was owned by Einstein. And it was auctioned for, I don't know, like three quarters of a million dollars or something like that. And this same Longines watch, yeah, it's an old Longines watch from the 30s or something like that. You you could probably buy one on the vintage market for, I don't know, a thousand bucks, maybe less, maybe a little bit more in perfect condition. But like... Why is one worth so many more times more? Because it was owned by you know someone important that people know and agree was a big deal. And so I think that you know not all watches necessarily need to be owned by someone, and you buy the exact one they had. But these days we have a lot of celebrities, uh, for better or worse, that like watches, are given watches, are, are hired by brands to promote their products, and that tells a lot of people oh, this person I respect that's in a bunch of films and who has a bunch of money, um, you know, n- now they're associated with this this brand or this look. I'll check it out. Maybe I don't know if they're an ambassador. I just It just looks like they, they chose it. They like it. And it's interesting because the idea of why a celebrity has value is this person is well-traveled, has money, and can pr- presumably choose to wear more or less whatever they want on their wrist that they chose this means they must really like it. If they must really like it, maybe I'll like it too. I don't know that that's how consumers actively process it, but I think that's what's going on in their mind. Subconsciously, yeah, definitely. Uh, and then there comes the question of how uh, you know legit that partnership is, whether it's paid for, whether it's been you know the choice of that person long before the partnership or whatever. You know, so so today these lines are blurring very heavily and and very uh, strongly, unfortunately. I want to talk about sort of this moral versus immoral luxury on the marketing side. And I think that what you and I cringe at and that we hate and that we're honestly ashamed of in this industry is what I call luxury deception. And it's as simple as the idea of somebody making us believe that something is worth more than it is. And this goes back to the earlier thing that you talked about of like, you know, do you really care how much it's actually worth? And, I, and I'd say that consumers really do. I think that a consumer who becomes aware that they've been deceived about something is like, gets very angry. You know, you almost make an an enemy out of them. It's dangerous to deceive. Though deception and the sort of smoke and mirrors game of luxury flirtation, they play such a delicate, close game. Sometimes the lines are blurred and I can understand how a brand or a marketer would accidentally or intentionally slip into the zone of deception versus the zone of mystere and flirtation. Yeah, but it's it's at the end of the end of the day, it's on us whether we recognize we as con- uh, customers or consumers, I, I mean, uh, recognize uh, whether we are being played with or or or, or we are you know, being talked to um, honestly or addressed honestly. It's difficult. It, it takes a long time. It's uh, it's not easy. You have to 
consume a lot of luxury advertising and it's not a good thing to consume at all but you do have to go through a lot of these pages and uh, you know for you to uh, to be able to recognize or get a sense of when you are being taken for a ride so to speak and when uh, you know a brand is actually legit and one of the big things i mean this is just this is actually a small detail but i wanted to bring this up and because it's so freaking common in the in the watch industry is the the dates on dials is is for me like a real pet peeve because essentially basically all of the luxury watch industry as we know today got kickstarted back in the uh, early 1980s and and 1990s and early 2000s for some brands and if you know even like a couple of years ago for some brands and, and then again you look at the dials and we're just laughing at at this thing before we started this recording that there's bound to be a date from the uh, mid to late uh, 1800s. And some of these brands just go away for decades or, or even like a whole century. And then you <laughs> buy something and you think you're buying into that. But then in reality, there was this random dude who had a workshop in some city or some town in, in, in Switzerland. And then, oh, okay, we just so agree with this heritage. Da, da, da. And then you end up buying like a five figure price watch with a, uh, a date from the 19th century. And you think that the two have to uh, have something to do with one another when in fact they have zero, zero. And <laughs> I think about half of the current luxury watch brands should actually be uh, either uh, redated or, uh, or, just, or just called something else because they have, without, outside of the name, absolutely nothing whatsoever with that heritage, nothing. It's just it's, it, literally nothing. And that's such a deceitful thing for the watch industry to do over and over again. It's not the only thing that they do that is deceitful, but it's one of the biggest things. And I think it's just such a blatant lie uh, that is out there that I think it, it could be and should be addressed. Like half of the conversation I thought you were talking about like the date complication window. I was like, where is he going with it? No, I was thinking about <laughs> which watch has a 19th century no, date on it. I figured it out. I figured it out. So you're talking <laughs> okay, about sure. the, the stated founding date. You know, yes. since... Since 1763. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm with you on that. Look, it, you're right. It's it's relatively innocent, but I guess the moral of the story is take everything a luxury watch brand says with an incredible grain of salt because there's literally no police out there making sure they're telling the truth. Literally nothing. I mean, the Swiss are not going to police themselves on these on these statements, <laughs> that's for sure. I mean, look, we we would probably face a lot of professional criticism for saying certain things we know that would be embarrassing to brands or the industry. But if you've done this for as long as we have, you start to learn things that are very, very, very embarrassing to the luxury watch industry. I, I wouldn't say that they make me want watches any less, but I think that there's a lot of business practices at a lot of angles and a lot of corners that aren't very well swept under the rug that would make you think twice about the sort of proud, polite, um, responsible, buttoned up, you know, nature that I think the the European luxury watch industry and, and or just the European luxury industry in general tries to position itself as. You know, they try to say that we're not a brand; we are an institution. You know, they call it Maison. Oh my God! We are the house. We 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 have many generations that have lived in this house. We all take care of the same house. You know, and it's a nice concept, but um, at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of made-up history. Honestly, if 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 Bentley called itself a maison, or you know, or or Mercedes did that, I would just—it's so cringeworthy. I, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. But to be fair, what you just described in terms of like things, you know, like uh, embarrassing or whatever, I think we couldn't. We'd be hard pressed to think about any industry, small, small or large, that was exempt from from such things so it's not just the watch industry to be fair yeah but i think the watch industry just by nature of who it attracts to run brands to fund brands to buy brands and the consumers themselves i mean we're not just talking about like marketing lies we're talking about you know um <laughs> just just a, a lot of a lot of people 
who you don't necessarily want to think of associated as being like the conservative watchmaker sitting in his workshop in Switzerland, you know, carefully toiling the hours away to make the perfect watch. There's, well, you know, the financiers and things like that. There's just a lot of craziness that goes into it. A lot of it. It, it, is, it is a lot of craziness, that's for sure. But then again, you know, the watch industry needs uh, other people, not just not just watchmakers toiling away over a watch. We need rockstar marketing people who actually create a buzz and every decade we get one of those basically and, other, <laughs> and if we didn't then the whole thing would be even more boring and and, and even less successful uh, outside of rolex obviously so so i think it's it's good that there is a buzz i don't like the shady uh, side of things and and again like you say there's a lot of embarrassing stuff but uh, I also very much agree with you that it's not it's nothing that would make me want watches less because it's not the watch's fault. It's just the way the industry functions. And like I say, it's it's true for any industry. It's just it's just you know twice as funny when it's happening with luxury items that were supposed to be immaculate in every sense of the word. Let's segue to the last part of this conversation, yes. and that is how people who are just getting into watches can can get what, you know, what is a luxury watch, entry-level luxury. And before I say that, I want to sort of use the funny statement that gets thrown around is that for as expensive as watches are and as much money as as brands want people to spend on them, um, luxury companies in general, not just watch brands, tend to be very tight-pursed and actually try to spend as little as possible. So there's sort of ongoing joke that, you know, it's like the, the money only flow, they only want to flow one direction. And so on yeah. that note of thriftiness, um, let's <laughs> talk about some strategies that a consumer who's just getting into watches can use to try to look for a, a, a real luxury watch. You know, we I've had this conversation on how to get into watches many, many times. The point now is to say, I, I'm going to spend luxury dollars, right? Like nothing's going to cost you a few hundred bucks. But I don't necessarily say I need to go spend 30,000 bucks. You know, what are some things to look for that don't necessarily need to be crazy expensive? I think the first thing, this is the process of elimination. Let's eliminate the things that would normally be expensive. And I'll throw the first thing out there and then you want. And that is what I call the brand name premium. You don't necessarily need to get something from a name brand to get that same material, level of quality, complication. Like if you're looking to throw things away where there isn't a lot of value, I'd say not paying for a brand is a great place to start. Um, I would disagree. I think, uh, and, and the reason for that is I think someone who's looking to make uh, their first luxury purchase will, I mean, that what you just said is obviously good advice. It's good advice, but it's advanced advice for someone who's been into watches for a very long time and is very, very comfortable in their knowledge and in, in their in their skin, so to speak. And if you are a novice customer, then you want to rely on other factors outside of your knowledge and your experience uh, to to feel comfortable uh, in your purchase. And brand name is one one such thing. And uh, if you are buying something that is obviously maybe good value, but it's not from a big brand, chances are it's going to be uh, more difficult to sell later on. And if you are buying your first luxury watch, chances are you're Taste will develop, and you want you will want to sell that watch or, or get rid of it. And then you know it's very easy to lose big money on something, or not even to be able to sell it at all if you're buying something from a smaller brand. So, as an early purchase, I I would say uh, if there's good value retention, then I would I would actually uh, suggest paying for the brand. Okay, so David, you're saying what we're saying is not inconsistent with one another. We just have different perspectives on it. You're saying yeah. when you're first getting into watches. You should be really mindful of resale value because you're probably not going to want that watch forever. And you might want to get rid of it and then try out something else. And yeah. if that's your goal, I agree, the more popular a watch is, the more likely you're going to be able to sell it for a price that you think is fair. The less mm. known it is, there's going to be a, a, a smaller resale market. Absolutely. I'm the type of person that advocates for more or less getting married to your watch. So I'm the type of person that will obsess about it. And I've, I... I, I've never bought a watch that I've regretted. I mean, I haven't bought all my watches. As a virtue of what we do, we have a lot of special um, access. But I, you and I, we both bought plenty of watches. I've been so meticulously crazy about doing those years and years of research. By the time I get it, I already know I'm going to like it. And I've never been wrong. But then again, I'm not going into it to resell it. So if you want to get the most bang for your buck, 
ditch the brand name. If you want something safer that allows you to maybe quote unquote trade up in the future, then a brand, you know, is important. Okay. Now you throw out something else that you think you can throw out. Yeah, I think, I think people should, you know, early on when they are buying before buying their first luxury watch, analyze themselves and, and look into themselves as opposed to looking to the market of watches because you, because everyone's buying a watch for, for a different reason. Maybe it's a fascination with watches. But then if you're fascinated with watches, then what type of watch? Just because something else seems to be better value, you know, you shouldn't buy a dive watch because it does X, Y, Z things better, you know, better resale or whatever. Uh, if you want a field watch or you want a dress watch or something like that, dress watches are not the hottest thing right now. But if you want something that's a small, elegant piece, uh, you know, then you should not, you know, compromise. Because no one dresses up anymore, David. I know, but I so wish I could wear more dress watches. Actually. I know. I, There's I, some I'm, amazing I'm, ones out there. Exactly. And so, and some are pretty good value if you buy pre-owned, but, you know, new, not, not many, not many brands, even those historically, you know, known for their dress watches make any, you know, really dress watches to say. Anyway, um, so yeah, look into yourself and, and, and try and define what is it that you think you will want to, uh, uh, you know, want your next watch to reflect and what desires you have in terms of your next uh, watch purchase. Okay, and so, I think it's it's super important because if you don't do this, then you will find yourself wearing a watch and then you will realize, oh, this is not exactly what I was thinking. Okay, so let's try to unpack that a little bit more in terms of like behaviors to avoid or behaviors to engage in. I think you're trying to say that people should ask themselves what do they want to do with the watch and make sure that the watch fits not only their lifestyle, but their own character and sense of taste. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and inherent in that, and I'll, I said I'll, I'll throw in the next one, is don't listen to someone else telling you what to get. This is very, very common. There's all these lists on the internet. They're like, mm-hmm. these are the watches to start out with. Get these 10 watches, you know, the top 10 luxury watches. Like, never buy anything because it's on a list. Never buy anything because someone tells you you have to get it. Um, there's this joke about like Reddit. There's, you know, the, the watches subreddit and there's, you know, various subgroups within there. And the joke is like, you know, in order to be accepted in this community, you have to buy like all 10 watches on their list and then you're one of them. Like, you know what I mean? There's no personal taste that goes into it. Just buy, buy the watches they say they're, are cool and you'll be fine. I, I think you and I both equally can tell people don't do this because the problem is if you just buy a watch that someone else tells you is good, you never really learn why it's good yourself and you'll not be able to have a good experience with it. So I guess, you know, boiling it down, it's buy a story that you understand. Don't buy a story because someone else says, this watch has a great story. I don't know what it is, but I hear it's cool. So you should get one too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's funny because this uh, overlaps pretty well with with this article that I that I wrote a year ago. It's it's three pieces of advice I would give my uh, novice watch collector self. And just the bullet points: Do not buy into the hype. Uh, to keep or to flip, make up your mind before buying. And uh, the last one was completely ignore what others might think of the watch of your choice. And and that's it. Um, if if I mean it sounds simple enough, but once you uh, assign yourself uh, these tasks, you will realize, okay, that's quite a bit of homework, actually. But if you do this, then uh, you know there's a, a much better chance that you will end up with a watch that you will enjoy wearing. I'm trying to think about you know more practical advice that we can give without getting too nerdy about like materials and things like that. I think it's a really safe thing to think that if you're just getting into luxury watches, design is probably a little bit more important than things like materials. I mean, unless you're like really into gold or you really want diamonds, look for designs that you want to wear. That's a really crucial thing. And I don't think it's emphasized enough, but you know, there'll be designs that look good to your eyes and there'll probably be different versions of that design out there. Like there's the most expensive version. There's the like middle expensive I think the Rolex Submariner is probably the perfect example. Like the most expensive version of that is the Rolex Submariner. But there's like, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of watches that ostensibly look like it. Mm. Before you ever buy the really expensive one, go ahead and get something that, you know, not is a copy. I would never recommend getting a copy, but get something that looks similar enough or that has a lot of the same materials or design elements to ask yourself if it makes you happy. Because I think that like, a lot of luxury value comes from the fact that a watch complements you well. And I think one of the things that 
most watch lovers will tell you is that when they're out in the world and if they ever get compliments about their watch, it never has anything to do with the price. Men I know constantly find this fact to be annoying. They're like, the girl didn't appreciate my really expensive watch, but my colorful, you know, G-Shock she mentioned, or, you know, the, the guys at the club thought this watch was really cool, but it was a basic one and it was whatever. And my really fancy yeah. other one, no one ever noticed. So if you're looking for attention, just buying an expensive watch, unfortunately, isn't really going to do that to you. So buying <laughs> design versus what you think is expensive, I think is a great way to start. Get something that you really, really like. Um, look, flashy colors is a great alternative to things like gold and diamonds. You know, a, a yellow watch, a bright green watch, a pink watch, any, any watch that has a brighter color is going to get you attention in a way that just sort of a muted steel watch isn't going to do. And so I think the trick is in getting a colorful watch that first and foremost is a good watch. And that's that's the last point I want to make, and then I'll have David make one, one more point, is make sure it's a good tool before it's a design item. And this is a little bit of a tricky concept, but it's like, think about cars. Make sure like it's comfortable to sit in the seat, and you like driving it around, and it's ergonomic, before you like anything about the materials in, inside, or the design of the car, or anything like that. Make sure it's a good car before it's a good-looking car. And same thing with a watch. Make sure it's a good watch. Like, can you read the time easily? Is it comfortable to wear on your wrist? Do you understand how to use it? Are you afraid it's going to break? So make sure all of these things you have sort of a thumbs up to before you ask yourself, what does it cost? Who makes it? What is it made out of? How well known is it? How many diamonds does it have? Those should all be like some of the last things you ask. Yeah. And um, in closing, because we re really do have to wrap this up. Um, you mentioned that there are different designs and, it, you know, you can have actually the same design, but at different price points, because there are different ways of getting into like the most expensive version, the, uh, the middle expensive version and so on and so forth. And I just wanted to add that sometimes that happens even within the same brand. So if you want, like not with the, well, it kind of happens with the Submariner too, depending on its age and condition and whatnot. But also with other luxury watches, chances are that your choice will be a luxury watch that's been in production for quite a long time. And if that's true, then you can play around and you should definitely look at what is what did that watch look like five years ago, or 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, if they were making it then and see whether uh, or not you can make a good deal and get the same vibe for a lot less. We have so much to say in luxury. Yeah, my closing statement is I would be really upset if the audience didn't like throw in a couple of like luxury memes or some jokes about the fact that we spoke about the concept of luxury for well over an hour. I just think we deserve like a little bit of like playful mockery at the fact that we obsessed over <laughs> the concept of luxury so much. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's right. Everyone, thank you so much for listening to this very special superlative podcast about luxury. Uh, David, myself, and the rest of the Blog to Watch team have been writing about luxury watches for a long time. A Blog to Watch has been around since 2007. We've covered probably every single angle of, of luxury watch that you can imagine, and there's still more and more things we learn. It's an amazingly dense area. Um, I think the one thing that I would say to people just getting into it is be patient. Don't be in a rush. Figure out what your tastes are first and foremost. You know, be educated by other people, but don't be influenced by anyone. Influence your own decisions because the most luxurious watch you'll ever wear is one that you chose and ideally earned yourself. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? <laughs> 